My name is Michael Delgado and I'm on special assignment for Art Report today. My guest today is the art critic, curator, and mentor to artists, Patty Johnson. Patty is the founding editor of Art F City. In addition to her work on the seminal blog, she has been published in New York Magazine, The New York Times, and The Economist. Patty lectures widely about art and the internet at venues including Yale, Parsons, Rutgers, and South by Southwest. She served on the board of the Rockefeller Foundation, and she's become the first blogger to earn an Arts Writers Grant from the Creative Capital Foundation, and she's been profiled in Vice magazine. Most recently, Patty is involved in a massive undertaking, setting out to chronicle the activity of artist-run spaces across the U.S. and their impact on the art world writ large. Patty and her cohorts have conceived a comprehensive book comprised of the art spaces telling their own stories. We talk with Patty about the important project, cover why artist statements tend to suck, and how to fix that. We also talk about the future of art and technology. I caught up with Patty, properly socially distanced over the phone, in her house in Queens, where she is still active as an instructor at Parsons and NJCU, albeit remotely. Please welcome Patty Johnson. Welcome, Patty Johnson. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. My pleasure. Um, I was I was doing a little bit of homework, and uh, I was looking at your website, and I read the Vice thing, as you suggested. Um, but I was most curious about um, your Impractical Spaces writing project or publishing project, and then the forthcoming book. I was wondering where that was and what that was all about. Oh, yeah. So the Impractical Spaces uh, project is something that I've been working on for Two and a half years with uh, Delphi Bohm and Corey Emig. The project itself um, engages uh, 50 cities and 50 states. And what we do is we partner with um, organizations in uh, in different states to produce a one-time publication that uh, looks at that archives um, defunct and active spaces in those um, cities or regions. So currently we have six uh, active partners who are working on a two-year timeline to produce a book. Book craft is tough enough, but wrangling artists who run artist spaces to produce books of their own on a particular timetable that you're going to compile into a comprehensive anthology seemed akin to Samuel Johnson's effort to compile the first English dictionary. So I asked Patty, how is she going to go about tilting at this windmill? So, well, so the project began with a questionnaire um, that we sent out on Art Up City uh, in 2016. And that was Michael Anthony Farley who came up with that questionnaire. And the questionnaire was just sort of a series of questions that was like, when did you make your artist, when did you found your artist space? Mm-hmm. What, uh, what were the years that was it, it was in operation? What forms did it take? Like, what was your best exhibition? You know, what did you learn the most? Like, you know, what were your most, did you have a challenging relationship with your landlord? And I think sure. the last, uh, the last question was, did you get your security deposit back? Um, because at that time, the, the publication <laughs> ran under the name 
we're so not getting the security deposit back, a guide to defunct artist spaces. So her questionnaire functioned as an organizing principle, but Patty discovered something unexpected in the numerous submissions. They were filled with incredible stories, and they were all very well written, you know? Ah, and wow. I think that, And I think that that kind of fucks the... Um, the idea, and I think really a common misconception, that artists are bad writers. You know, I think that's not at all the case. I think that when they're telling their own stories, they're actually very good at it. And I think that there's a lot of anxiety around um, writing about one's own work and, like, what that's supposed to look like um, that then can um, get in the way of producing things that, like artist statements, which are kind of, um, you know, also have a bad rap. Artist statements got me started. And and deservedly so, mostly, I would say. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. But I do think that there are other reasons, um, you know, sort of behind uh, why artist statements are so bad, you know? And I think right. part of that really comes out of the fact that, you know, when a company produces a mission statement, let's say, you know, they have a whole team, a press release, they have a team of people, but an artist is expected to do this all themselves, and it's a kind of self-promotion mixed with, uh, you know, description of, of work that, you know, if you are sort of, if you have your head inside the making of it, then it can be very difficult to, you know, get outside of that for a moment. I told Patty that my general opinion was that artists just shouldn't say anything. They're often the last to know what's going on in their artwork, or worse, it comes off as terrible self-promotion. I thought it was up to critics like her, or even me, when I occasionally pick up the poison pen, to figure it out. An artist's intent has historical interests, but I've always been attracted to the singular push and pull between a maker and their audience. I, of course, hold that the artist's intended audience, intentioned or not, is the audience of one, the artist themselves. You know, I mean, I think the Hantaka exhibition at the New Museum, um, when that was up last um, last fall and into the winter, I think is a good kind of um, foil to that, that position because you know, his his explanations for his work are very clear. And certainly, you know, the new mu- museum has this terrible their wall label their wall labels are the worst in the city. They're they really they they explain things in ways that make the artwork sound dumber than it is usually. Right. Um, sure. And and this was one time when the curators were like, Okay, Hans, you tell your own story. It was way better. You know, right. I loved going through that. Now, that's, of course, not the case for everyone, but I do think that he is a good model. Still fascinated by the Impractical Spaces Project and understanding that she had partners in varied cities throughout the country, I was curious how she went about curating the artist organizations that would be involved. So the initial partners were chosen pretty much through... Um, my own personal connections and uh, a kind of mix of that and people who heard about the project and reached out. So, for example, we're partnering with 
um, Pete Hirshhorn in Houston, and he heard about us in the pendant of um, anybody reaching out to him. And he uh, he has written a book on artists. Uh, on art space, on the history of art spaces in Houston from like the 1970s on called Collision. Um, hmm. so he was, and he self-funded that, that whole project. So this was, you know, kind of the perfect person for us to partner with. But, uh, you know, there are other people I sought out, Puerto Rico, Pietro's, uh, projects is our partner there. And I wanted to make sure that we, you know, this publication was just not a monument to white men. So I wanted that to really be, an, you know, I wanted them to be an, amongst our first partners so that we could really kind of lead by example so that people knew the kinds of um, publications we intended to produce and the kind of diversity that we um, expect to capture. It didn't seem to ring true to me that artists run spaces for the bastions of white male artistry. And my experience has been that they're, in fact, outposts for inclusion. Yeah, I don't know that that's been our experience thus far. Uh, I think that um, sort of by far and away the people who are involved in the project tend to be women, um, you know, just in terms of organizing, which is consistent with, uh, I think, the leadership in nonprofit roles mm-hmm. um, across the country. Um, I would say that uh, the efforts that our current partners are making um, tend to, uh, who are not sort of already located in a space that, um, you know, like Puerto Rico, you know, Kansas City, um, they've had a race problem for, like, it's sort of been longstanding. So to, uh, I think, to address that, one of the things that that, particular publication is doing is sort of um, thinking about artist-run spaces in a kind of broader sense, because uh, I think one of the things that Corey had said to me, um, who was our lead partner there, uh, was that sometimes African-American projects might um, take place in, like, less conventional spaces, but they would also have different kinds of goals in mind when they launch shows. So, there wasn't necessarily the idea that they were participating in a kind of, uh, like, system or industry where you would um, start at an artist-run space and then end up in a museum, you know? That note of an artist-run space as a pathway to recognized institutions begged the question of how Patty and her colleagues were going about selecting the spaces to include in this historic portrait. That's not really my decision, and I'm glad that it's not, um, because I have a different role. So um, the partners really decide the scope and who's going to be in it. And, Mm. you know, when we put this together... Um, a lot of the jobs that I had was sort of doing a lot of the editing. You know, we worked on the arrangements of how these things would be laid out with a graphic designer. We came up with the design, like all that stuff we did together. Um, but the actual, like, what's going to be in it, but I would never tell somebody what to put in their publication and what not to. Yeah, it's a huge project, and, uh Congratulations on that. That's a, it's an exciting idea too. I think it's a you know 
when you get it together, like, what a portrait. Yeah, I think so. Patty was an early adopter of new technologies and led the first wave of art critics who blog. There she earned a notorious reputation as one who wouldn't pull punches in a review. She also teaches new media at Parsons and NJCU. So I wanted her insights on how the internet has impacted the art world. Yeah, I mean, so I think like um, the early days when I first started blogging um, were really exciting. Uh, and I I would, um, actually, I would, I guess I would just push back a little bit on the description that I was a notorious um, blogger. <laughs> I don't know that I had a negative reputation <laughs> Well, I don't know this is negative. It's just I, 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 you've been known for speaking your mind, right? Like you don't. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I think that's like slightly different than notoriety. Um, yeah. But I understand why it's there. Um, but yeah. So and that's like um, uh, that is a hallmark of um, the kind of dialogue and conversation that happened when I first started blogging in 2005. So I'm self-taught. I didn't, I don't have an art history degree. I went to school for painting. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, I have a master's in that from Rutgers University. And uh, when I got online, I was, I had actually been, I wasn't doing that much painting. I was making fake websites for things because I thought that was fun. So like, and so when I started, I also started um, under a no, an anonymous name, and I started uh, the full name of the blog at that time was Art Fag City. And that right. was consistent with um, sort of many types of very provocative names that were coming out at the time. I think there was uh, somebody called uh, who ran a blog called Book Slut, and then there was uh, yeah, Morgan, yeah. there was a there was a sports blog called a very popular sports sports blog called Men with Balls, you know. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of sort of um, envelope pushing names that were uh, that were used at that time, and so I definitely pushed that one um, quite far in that respect, but. You know, I think also at that time, you know, I used it in the same way that you might you might use the term opera queen, which is to say, like, you know, fandom. Um, I was an yeah. art fan, and I lived in a city full of art fans. So it was really, um, you know, when I used it, it was provocative, and I knowingly so, but it was also um, about a certain kind of love. And that love often manifested itself in a, a, as a kind of chattiness. Nerd alert. Patty goes into talking about life on the Internet before Tumblr, which I find fascinating, and I hope you do too. There was a lot of comment wars at that time, and a lot of um, sort of, at that time, there were artists who would start their own platform, something that you don't see anymore. Um, but... Uh, so that was one way that artists really used uh, the medium in kind of exciting ways. So rather than having an Instagram account, artists would have blogs, and they would mm. write on their blogs. You know, rather than maintaining a Facebook account, they would they would do that too. There was um, there was a lot of um, exchanges of of gifts and other images on this site called Dump FM, which is where you would just chat with 
actual images. It was a, yeah. There were these things called surf blogs where artists would exchange images that they'd find online in a group blog. This was before Tumblr. So a lot of these things were, I think, natural adaptations that artists used to share images that we now just have uh, that that we have platforms to do that for us now. The problem is is that we have less control over what we see. Fast forward. I asked Patty what she thought about the structure of the internet, its guiding forces, and the implications for artists today. Um, I think algorithms are not good for art, right? So I think like if you don't have control over what you're seeing and why then you're not necessarily able to expose yourself to the kinds of things, uh, to a, di- a diversity of expression. And that's actually something that I started thinking about a lot with the, um, well, now, what the fuck, uh, which is this online exhibition of animated gifts um, that's curated by Wade Wellerstein, Faith Holland, and Lorna Mills. And there's like 80 people in the exhibition um, it's an exhibition in response to the COVID quarantining. You know, I was just going through all the gifts, and I was like, you know, I would never find these gifts normally because you can't. Hmm. Yeah, you know, they won't. Yeah, they them. won't. Yeah, they won't serve them to. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's like one of the. Um, I think one of the parts of online life that's that's kind of suffered, and. The interesting thing about that show is, I mean, especially if you look at earlier online animated GIFs, like these GIFs, I mean, they're just far more complicated because you can, the software allows you to do like crazy things. You know, it's not that there hasn't been a lot of games, but there's, you know, it's it's not one solid line of progress. I asked Patty how she thought the Internet specifically, or the ubiquity of technologies of all kinds, is impacting the way art is being consumed and purchased. I don't know the answer to that question. I will say that um, prior to COVID, Christie's had been organizing for its second year um, a technology conference. So last year they did a conference on um, AI. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a big thing, and I think a lot of artists and a lot of um, companies that are sort of exist to sell art in some way are thinking about. That's why PaceX exists. This is their new tech wing. A lot of this technology was sort of predicated on the idea that maybe people would be there in person to experience it, you know, so it was mm. like technology and, like, experience art melded into one. So now we're dealing with, Um, now we're dealing with, like, Zoom art, right? So they're sort of different things. Patty has most recently brought her critical eye and communications talent to assist artists in a new series of webinars. In a time of quarantine, they're not only welcome, they're highly sought after. If you are an MFA mentor, an MFA, or a self-taught artist, Patty instructs you in how to launch a private exhibition online, critiquing the varied platforms available, showing case studies from prestigious schools, and offering a complete guide on what you need to do if you don't have access to the -the top-of-the-line techno resources. She also offers a generous surprise. The thing that's probably the the most exciting thing for 
for these um, particular uh, students, and they don't know it yet, is that I put together a drive of resources for them, one of which includes like a little sort of baby press uh, mailing list. So they'll have the names of some people they can contact about their show. Oh, there you go. Oh, there you go. Well, that's good. And then, well, that oh, sounds even good. if it bores the fuck out of them, they will have gotten their money's worth. <laughs> Excellent. In part of Patty's practice, she also guides artists of all stripes on how best to express themselves. And I asked her if, in an open-source sort of spirit, she might share some of the top-line points of her related webinars. There's kind of a couple of things that I think are key. Um, one is that I tell students that they are artists, that they're, they're telling a story. You know, so um, usually I advise artists to begin with an idea and then talk about their work. So tying their work um, to an idea is a means of establishing relevancy, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you always mm-hmm. want you always want to make sure that like the, you're telling people that there's a reason that this is being made, um, other than just you happen to be, you know, in your studio one day and you picked up a paintbrush and here you are. Um, so because I think the viewer needs to understand why this is relevant to them. And then the second thing that I always tell artists is that the description of their work should be clear um, and um, informative. So uh, a lot of that is really just like, we, you know, we might look at, say, product reviews of things like on, on you know, consumer blogs and things like yeah. that. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you, wanna, you want the language to be really clear. One of the most common problems um, that artist statements sort of suffer from is this this kind of hesitancy I I see quite frequently to describe the work at all um, mm. for fear right. that you you might be pinning yourself down. But a description huh. of the work is really just factual, right? So there's there shouldn't be any fear about that. Right. Um, but that's the thing that I think, like, of all the things, like, I, you know, making sure that you can actually describe the work as it is is kind of the most important thing that you will get out of um, any kind of workshop with me. And that's what we spend a lot of time doing because the other thing that happens when you describe something accurately is you better understand it. So Yeah, the, right. Yeah, whole, yeah just summarize it. All right. Yeah, is that if you can, you know, is that if you can write the statement, then you're better in studio visits, and you're also, it equips you to be better able to make the work. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Good luck with your webinar tonight. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You can learn more about Patty, why she may or may not be a notorious art critic, as well as more about her fun and informative webinars at pattyjohnson.com. That's Patty with two D's and at artfcity.com. For Art Report Today, I'm Michael Delgado. Thanks for listening.